Um, it talks about in that song, have you seen Jesus? Have you seen him in the sunset? Have you seen him in the midst of all the good things and the blessings that are going on in your life? Uh, but the last verse says, have you seen him in the family, in your brother and your sister? And the song includes both of the ideas that we've been talking about through this series, that, that we as Christians are supposed to seek out ways that we can experience and enter into the presence of God, into the presence of Jesus. But that as a result of going into God's presence, that we should leave and then become the presence of God and the faithful presence of Jesus in the world that we find ways to take what we receive and give it and share it with others and share it with, with the world. And so we've got to find ways to seek to do that. And we've looked at a number of uh, practices that Christianity has, being with children, spending time with the least of these, the Lord's Supper, uh, so many different things that, that the church family does together. Uh, the, the book that we've been working out of, Faithful Presence, took a book that was written very individualistically of saying, how do, do Christians as individuals uh, seek to experience God's presence and then live it out in their own life? We've been, as we've worked through this series this summer, asking instead, how do we do it together? How do we do it in the context uh, of the church and in our homes and in the world where we go as guests and try and take Jesus with us? But all of it starts in the church. All of it starts in the kingdom of God, where we gather together as a family of, of brothers and sisters, and we see Christ in one another and become Christ to one another. And then we go into the world and we seek ways to creatively and meaningfully live the presence of Jesus into a world that so desperately needs to know who God is and what he's about. They experience God so often through our taking God into the world. Um, you know, on a number of occasions, I'll preach a sermon. Today, we're going to be talking about, about prayer and kingdom prayer and, and how that brings us into God's presence and how it should send us into the world uh, if we are really praying in a way that is not just offering words to God, but is in a listening and a receiving place. Um, there's sometimes that, that some of you come up to me after a sermon and say, man, that is exactly what I needed to hear today. Um, this is one of those sermons that as I started working on it, on, on, on Wednesday especially, that it was, as I was writing it, I thought, this is exactly the sermon I needed to hear today. Uh, as I was studying in it, 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 it struck me as something that I needed to hear. And, and I want to kind of start by telling you how that went and why it was so important to me, and maybe this will be a blessing to you as well. Uh, Wednesday morning, Leah and I were talking, and, and we've realized recently uh, that since the pandemic hit, that one of the things that we've gotten out of the habit of doing is going on dates. Um, we just got out of the habit of doing it, and we haven't done it, and we're wanting to build that back into our family. Uh, and we also have developed a tradition of going to the state fair, uh, which you have told me like 20 years ago that one of my family traditions would be going to the state fair. I would have said, no, it will not. Um, but it is. And sometimes when I'm at the fair, I think, this is still surprising. But there we are. We go to the fair. So, so Wednesday, we're talking, and we said, okay, we need to find time to go with our family and have this experience that's kind of a tradition. And we need to find time in the next week or two uh, to go on our monthly date with just the two of us. And so I said, okay, let's get into the calendar. And we've got shared calendars, Google calendars. They're color-coded. The kids have one. Leah has two. I've got two. It's gross, okay? It's gross. 
Um, this is my, you know, ugh, all right, but it's, it's all on my computer. I said, let me pull it up. And I said, okay, are you looking at it too? And she says, yeah. And I said, let's do this separately in rendezvous in about 30 minutes, okay? So we hang up, and I'm sitting here going, I don't, I don't know where we're going to find time for any of this stuff that's valuable to us, that we care about, because we've got so many things, and they're good things. It's, it's kids, it's school, it's work, it's projects, it's sports, it's, it's other organizations. And I wasn't sure how we were going to do this. So I thought, well, let me look at what October's going to look like. And that got discouraging. And I thought, well, November's going to be great. And that got discouraging. Um, and so I text Leah. I said, man, spending some time with our calendar. This is a text. Spending some time with our calendar has me feeling pretty stressed. My brain wants to start chasing down five different trails at once to try and get back in control of anything. So since I couldn't pick a trail, I was like, Sunday is coming. I better do the sermon. And so I sit down and I get into my study for my sermon. And as I'm starting to kind of work through uh, the chapter on kingdom prayer that I wanted to kind of use as my source, here's the first thing that I read. The drive for control is at the core of the human condition. We live daily with overwhelming uncertainties. Anxiety is the air we breathe in the Western economies. Most people live isolated, vulnerable lives, and so we strive as individuals to secure our existence in every way. We strive to make our finances, our health, our family, our future predictable. Most of us live under the delusion that we are in control of our lives. Some of you are laughing because you get that I'm under the delusion that I'm in control of my life. As a result, endless striving characterizes our existence. Most of us are not aware how much it's affecting us physically and emotionally. And then I look at the text I just sent my wife, and I look at my book, and I keep reading. God cannot work amid our striving. He works around us. He works despite us. He still gets things done. He's ultimately sovereign. He's in control of the world. But as for actually using us in his power and authority, he will not oppose our grabbing and pushing for control. At which point I say, yes, Lord, your servant is listening, right? He refuses to steamroll our wills in order to dictate His will in our lives and in the world. God is love. God is patient. God's power can only work through us as we submit to Him. Let Him work. Open up space for Him. And as we gather in His presence and submit to Him and tend to His presence, then He works in all His power. The Apostle Paul challenges the Philippians in what has become one of my favorite verses of Scripture. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And we've got these multiple forms of, of, kind of going to God in prayer, right? With prayer and petition and thanksgiving. And we tend to think of prayer as just kind of our daily journal to God. It's where we go with the wish list, and we go to kind of share the things that are on our hearts, and that's good to do that. And it's good to tell God what matters to us. Ask, and it shall be given to you. That's petition. 
Always going to God with thanksgiving is giving prayers of gratitude and thanks to God, and we need to be doing that. But just this idea of prayer as kind of this other thing that stands apart from petition and thanksgiving is also here in what Paul's writing to the church in Philippi. Because prayer is the opposite of striving and anxiousness. Therefore, in everything we are to resist striving and insist instead that we present ourselves to God in prayer. And Paul separates prayer from petition. We usually just think of them as being the same thing. That we go to God all the time and say, okay, God, here's what I need today. Here's what I want for tomorrow. Here's what I need for someone else in my life. Can you do this for them? And it has all these times that we go to God, and it's like we're giving him instructions on what we think is the best path for our life in the world. Which is a dangerous thing to do, right? Because who actually knows the best thing for our life in the world? God does. But we don't ask him. We tell him what we think. Prayer as we will discover, is the incredible act of giving up our desire for striving and control to the one who can actually give us peace and resolution for the problems in our life and the world. Prayer is a turning over of control, except that the way that we do it, why do we keep thinking that we're the one that needs to be driving all the time? When God's at the other end of the prayer, There needs to be more times that our prayer is an opportunity for us to say, God, you be in control, you guide, let me receive and see where this thing goes. Not, God, if you just answer this one prayer, I can fix things by your power. You see how different that is? How different it is for us to think that prayer is a way that we can increase our striving and our control, that it should instead be a releasing of those things to the God who is in control and is good and who is a Father who loves us. We turn it over to the reign of God. And it's only after we've entered that space that that we then can be shaped and then have the wisdom to even know the things to ask. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes it requires the Holy Spirit to go groaning to God on our behalf to pray the things we don't even know how to give word and voice to. Striving is at the core of life in this world, but prayer dislodges us from that striving and opens up space. And it's then that the kingdom is able to move in. It's then that we come into the presence of God. It's then that God begins moving in us and through us to change us into being transformational on His behalf. But we don't think about prayer that way. And, And that's not surprising because there are times that that there are uh, times that in scripture people fail to think about it that way but we need to get on board with this idea that the reality is that a rightly a right part of every other discipline when we think about how we do the lord's supper kingdom prayer prayer allowing god to move in us and shape us should be part of the lord's supper each week When you come into God's presence, into the presence of Jesus Christ, who promised us that he'll show up and be present when we remember him and celebrate him in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the fruit of the vine each week, that we should be shaped by that. We should be transformed. Jesus tells us when you spend time with the poor and the hungry and the naked, with the least of these, when you go spend time with them, you're spending time with me. We should be molded by that experience, more into the image of Jesus. 
When we spend time with children, as Jesus does, saying, as I experience the presence of God, I give it to children so they can experience the presence of God, that should shape me. And in all of these different ways that we encounter God's presence, we should not be leaving unchanged. One of the things you see over and over again in Scripture is when someone comes into the presence of God, whether it's a burning bush or a vision of of God and His robe filling the temple, no one leaves those and says, huh, tomorrow's probably going to be like yesterday. They don't. Tomorrow's going to be radically different than the day before. Why? Because today I was in God's presence. And every week on Sunday, we show up not really expecting Monday to be that different than Saturday. We don't have an expectation that we will come into the presence of God and that as a result of that, on Monday, we're going to take the presence of God into the world. And if we can begin to have this expectation of encountering God in prayer and and with one another, and when we see Jesus in one another's faces, that should shape us week by week in small ways, and sometimes when we have an incredible encounter with God in a big way. We should expect God to change us. We should expect that the presence of God should be something that we think, man, when we are in God's presence, tomorrow's going to be different. I'm going to grow. Parts of me are going to be cut away. Parts of me are going to be added. You're going to add things to my life that I'm lacking. I'll add things to your life that you're lacking. Do we become transformed people in in a family of people that are making a difference in the world because we came into God's presence? So often we think of prayer as just the thing we also do at the beginning or before the meal or to get the list out of the things so people know that we love them. We prayed for their health and their their other concerns. And and there's these two stories that I want us to look at uh, just briefly as we kind of think about some of the mistakes we make when we think about what prayer can do and is doing in our lives and in the world. The first one is in Mark chapter 9. This is just after the transfiguration when when Jesus has experienced his time uh, on the mountain and he's come down with the few and he finds the other disciples, starting at verse 14, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. I've been thinking about the word wonder this week. Uh, This is kind of off, I wasn't planning on talking about this. I bought some new mattresses this week, and they're from a company whose slogan is uh, live with wonder. Which I have nothing, I have no idea what that has to do with mattresses. But it's made me think, what an incredible word. And, and as Jesus comes down from the mountain, and these people are in an argument about a demon-possessed boy, they see Jesus, and what they experience when they see him is wonder. You do not encounter God and have tomorrow be like yesterday because he is wonderful. They were overwhelmed with wonder, overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. 
Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, says Jesus. This is one of those moments where Jesus just kind of says, Jesus often humility to the extreme. But in this moment, he says, if I can, it, it, if I can, and it may be because he just came from the transfiguration where he's kind of learning who he is and what he's all about in his business, and he comes down, and this guy says, teacher, if you can do anything, if I can, everything is possible for one who believes. And the father exclaims at this moment, immediately the boy's father exclaims, I do believe, help me overcome my belief. And if you've ever been in one of those moments where you've had one of those incredible things where you're like, if I could have enough faith, God, I have enough faith. I'm not sure I have enough faith. Give me the faith I lack so that I can have enough faith to ask for this and have this request granted. And the Father gives this incredible statement of faith and unfaith and crying on Jesus to help him with both of those. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him to his feet and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And now Jesus is going to tell him what he did and they did not. What their lack was that he had plenty of. And he replies, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now this is wild. Because what this means, if Jesus is telling them what you needed to do to drive this demon out of this boy was pray to God and ask him to do it and he would have done it. That seems to be what Jesus is implying. What that tells us is that the apostles were trying to cast out a demon by their power. Matthew would have walked up to this demon-possessed boy and said, I declare as a tax collector who follows Jesus, come out of this boy. And nothing happened. Then another would have come out and said, this needs a fisherman. Touch. Fisherman's touch here. I'm a fisher of men now. As a fisher of men, demon, come out of this boy. And as the apostles, one after the other, start trying to call this demon out of this child, apparently none of them thought to appeal to God and his power to do what this little boy need. He's not a little boy. He's had this problem for years. What this son needed. Jesus says, you should have prayed. 
And it gets into one of the problems I think we somehow sometimes have with prayer, where we think that prayer is one of the ways that, that it, we don't realize that we need prayer to put God in control, and we desire control ourselves. We want to do things on our merits, our ability, our power, our skills, and we fail to call on God and realize that it's only in prayer and calling on His power that we can do things that are not to our honor because of who we are, but that are to His honor and glory because of who He is. And it begins to reorient us when we realize that we can't do the things that we need to do in this world without calling on God to guide us and send us and give us the power and authority we need to change this world for His good purposes and His glory not mine. There's another story. It's kind of long. I'm not going to read it all. It's in, it's in Acts chapter. Uh, it's in Acts chapter eight. It's about Simon the sorcerer, and it's about this guy named Simon the sorcerer. Uh, it's early in the book of Acts, or partway through it. Many people are coming to believe in Jesus, and Simon the sorcerer uh, could perform many miracle or many feats of wonder. You might say, he became to have a nickname. His nickname was the Great Power of God. Which if your nickname was the great power of God and you could do things that people were impressed with, that kind of power would start to get addicting, wouldn't it? You'd start to really enjoy that. And so when some of Jesus' followers come and they, they say, hey, you need to know about Jesus Christ, Him crucified and resurrected. The kingdom of God is here. He became a baptized follower of Jesus. And he was excited about the message and excited about the good news. And at some point, the apostles come through and they start praying and laying hands on some of the people that are there and giving them the Holy Spirit. And he says, this is the man who is known as the great power of God. He says, man, think about all the cool names and all of the honor and influence I would have if I had the power to give out the Holy Spirit to other people. But how do I get this power? They have it. I want it. I'll go ask him how much it costs. And so he goes up to the apostles and he says to them, look, um, what's the, the price? What's the going rate? And they're like, for what? To get this Holy Spirit thing. I don't know if you've, you've heard about me. I'm the great power of God, and I would like your power so that people could continue to praise me as the great power of God and the one of great influence. And they rebuke him. They rebuke him. And see, the Holy Spirit power that we have is not intended for our glory or our benefit or our being exalted among other people. You better repent or you're going to be lost. Pray for repentance. And in this moment, he's so struck by what they're saying. He says, can you pray that I be forgiven for this? Because I, he's struck by it. And we fall into this trap sometimes that we can use the Holy Spirit's power that we can use prayer to manipulate this world for my benefit, my honor, my influence. And so our prayers so often are about getting what I want. Our prayers so often are about having the difficulties of my life removed. They're about having the things that I want given to me by God so that I can say, I, I prayed for it and God gave it to me and I'm blessed and I stand before you as one who has received God's blessing. And is that true? Yes. To His glory, not mine. But we want to strive for control. We want to strive for ambition. We want the delusion that we are in control. And our prayers reflect that. Because our prayers go to God and say, God, if you could just take my will 
and bring it into being in this world, I would appreciate that. Don't you think God sometimes is standing in that moment of prayer with us going, could you just be quiet for a minute? Because I actually know what's best for you. Would you be quiet for a minute? Because instead of the things you think you want, I know what's better for you and your family and the world around you. But you're going to have to let go of, of your desire and need to have the delusion of control for a minute to receive some guidance from the one who actually is in charge here. So on one occasion during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And what he says to them is this. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. And immediately, in the very first word, there's a teaching there, isn't it? This prayer doesn't say, my Father in heaven, give me today my daily bread. It doesn't say, uh, help me have my debts forgiven. Our our Father. This prayer has always been written and created and designed for a family of followers of Jesus to pray together. Our Father who is in heaven, and it's Father, it's not King, it's not Ruler, it's one who has adopted us as His children. Our Father who is in heaven, let Your name be holy. You are set apart. You are the Creator. You are the one in control. I don't go to You who is holy and sovereign and set apart, and yet still my Father and tell you what you need to do for my benefit. Because God is the one who is holy. God is the one who is greater than, who is in charge. And if I understand that, then what I say is, is as God's people, we pray to our Father who is set apart and who rules over us and who knows what is right, and we should live accordingly. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer begins with a a call for God's wisdom and guidance, for God's power in heaven to become God's power on earth. And it's so different from our normal prayers. Normally it's, it's, dear heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Here's what I want your kingdom to look like on this earth. If you could just let me tell you what would be best for me, I'm sure it's also best for you. But Jesus' prayer, his kingdom prayer, isn't like that. When your kingdom comes, let your will be done. It's a listening. It's a request for guiding. It's a request for God to be in control. Give us today our daily bread, not mine. It's not, it's not a prayer for my daily bread. It's a prayer for our daily bread. Which means if I've got extra, you should have plenty. Amen. Forgive us our debts because we all have sins and problems and challenges in us and between us that should result as we are forgiven in us radically giving forgiveness to others that is, as it has been given to us. We receive and we bless Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This prayer was part of the daily prayer habits of the earliest Christians. 
There was a document called the Didache. It gave us kind of the habits and daily beliefs and practices of, uh, of Christians shortly after the, the New Testament authors had quit writing. You're like, what did Christians do right after that? The Didache gives us clues into that. And one of the things it said is that they prayed this prayer daily, that it was part of their daily prayer practice. Uh, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said this is the source and foundation from which so many other prayers come. Does that mean that once you say this, you're done? No. For Tertullian, what it meant is, if you pray this prayer, what a great launching point for the rest of the prayers you need to have with God that day. And so you pray this prayer, and then after that, you offer to God thanksgivings and petitions and, and, and opportunities to give glory to God for who He is and what He's done, and to listen and, and allow God's Spirit to move in you and through you to help you become the presence of God coming out of the prayer as you experience the presence of God in the prayer. It's not the only prayer, but a launching point for a rich life of prayer. And when we figure that out, we begin to recognize that we're going into the presence of God in prayer, and you should not leave the presence of God unchanged. We begin to realize that God is holy and in charge. Our focus in prayer should be uh, to be an open and listening presence to a God who wants to guide us. There is a theologian, Karl Barth, who once wrote, to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Isn't that a thing? More and more I hear people in different contexts and venues saying, I think that if things in this world don't start getting better, there's going to be an uprising. And maybe there needs to be one. But when they say that, what I think I hear them saying is, we need people to take up arms. And what I'm telling you right now is we need people to put their hands together in prayer if we want a revolution in this world. If we want God to turn this world upside down, it's not going to be through force of bullets and weapons. It's going to be through a spiritual warfare of prayer of God's people saying, change me so I can change the world. I want to come into God's presence and experience it so that I can then come out of his presence and send it and become it in the world where God's calling me to go and do and live out mission. One last story and we'll wrap it up. In 2010, and when I say this, you might be thinking, yeah, but practically, prayer's really going to change things? Yes. Are you telling me that, like, really you think that, that a community that's just ravaged by all kinds of problems and immorality can actually be changed and transformed by kingdom prayer? In 2010, there's a group of eight Christians from two churches in Sacramento, California. And, and they just felt called by God to come together as the eight of them and begin walking through a community in Sacramento called uh, the Detroit Boulevard community. And they start going through the Detroit Boulevard community where there were so many crimes every night, uh, crimes of drug addiction, of violence, of danger, uh, of oppression, all kinds of different oppressive evil were going on in this neighborhood. And they said, here's what we're going to start doing. We're going to regularly walk through this neighborhood, and we're going to pray for every single house. And after they did this for a while, they started to say, it actually starts to feel like the evil and oppression of this place is lifting with our prayers. 
And after a while of praying over this place, something happened that so often should happen in kingdom prayer, which is they felt convicted not just to be praying about it, but to be bringing God's, God's presence into that place. And the eight of them moved to Detroit Boulevard. And they moved in, and they eventually started a church that was there, and they started to, to bless people and worship with people and invite people, and things started changing. In three years after they moved in, the Sacramento Bee, the largest newspaper in Sacramento, California, wrote this. In that neighborhood, between 2013 and 2014, there were zero homicides. There were zero robberies, there were zero sex crimes, and there was one assault in two years in a neighborhood that had previously been called a carnival because of how many arrests were taking place nightly in this neighborhood. What changed it? Prayer. People that received God's guidance and called to go there and be His presence to people that lacked his presence. When we imagine what it means to be God's faithful presence in the world, we need to be willing to enter his presence in prayer, not to give him our wish list, but to be in his presence and to be changed by it so that when we come out of those prayers, we have the power and ability and the calling and conviction to be the presence of God in the world. That's how we change the world. If you're here this morning and you need to come forward for any reason, please come forward as we stand and sing. Oh, to Jesus I surrender.